Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hello, everybody. What is going on? Welcome in to the latest edition of the Xander's Facts Podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. We got episode 118 coming up for you. It's going to be a good one here on Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. Thank you all so much for listening. We got a big topic to talk about this week. As I alluded to last week during our Xander's Facts flashback, if you listened to our flashback last week, because we didn't have a new episode of the podcast last week. This week we do, and we are talking about... The strikes that are going out out in Hollywood with the actors and the writers, because I think a lot of people are interested in that, but there's a lot of facts out there that need to be known. And so I am here this week to break it all down for you. What is going on exactly out in Hollywood with all these strikes that are going on? As always, y'all got questions. I've got facts. So we're going to talk about what's going on with that coming up in just a second here on the Zaders Facts podcast. But before we do... Just thought I'd remind you all that if you like the Zaders Facts podcast, if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 118, rate and review the podcast, and check us out on all the socials, Twitter, threads, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at Zaders Facts, that's Zander with a Z, and most importantly, remember to tell all your friends around here, we like to call it, spread the facts! Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast. The newsletter, Xander's Weekend Facts, which is a recap of the week's top headlines that I write, comes out every Sunday morning. Check it out. It is free to sign up in the episode's description. The link is there. And also check out the Xander's Facts link tree, because it has all the Xander's Facts links that you need. All the facts that you could ever want. And also listen to any of our past episodes, all past 117 episodes, because every single week, if you're new to the podcast, we take a subject each week and basically lay down all the facts on it. Like this week, we are talking about the Hollywood strikes. As I said, labor movements, y'all. So why don't we get to that? Because that is our main topic this week. We are understanding the Hollywood strikes. Labor is basically kind of like the talk of the town across America at the moment, y'all. We've had the actors and writers strikes that have been going on for months out in Los Angeles, which I wanted to talk about for a while because... You know, usually when we do these podcasts, I find some interesting topic that I'm interested in, but I don't really know a lot about, and so I do all the research and gather the facts, and so I can learn more, and then y'all can learn more, because we're sharing the facts on this podcast. Sanders Facts! And so this is one of those topics, because it's been going on for months, and I've wanted to talk about it, but that's not the only strike that's been going on, because last week you probably heard that the United Auto Workers began striking at three U.S. plants that are owned by Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, which apparently could spread to additional factories if progress isn't made on a deal between the automakers and the union. So, there's that. But back in the summer, if you remember, the UPS workers were close to striking before they finally reached a deal, and then last year the federal government had to step in to stop rail unions from striking against companies like CSX and Norfolk Southern. So labor, unions, disagreements leading to strikes, it's been in the news a lot. But this, you know, the United Auto Workers one is also very big. But in terms of size and scale, the strikes that are going on in Hollywood right now that are shaking up the entertainment industry are basically the big ones going on right now in the U.S. And that's what we're going to focus on today because those aforementioned labor disputes are definitely important, but they don't reach the scale of what's going on in Hollywood right now, as I said. 
Over 180,000 writers and actors are currently on the picket lines, and there's a lot more people affected too, other than the people who are actually in these unions. And then also, you've got the fact that this strike is going to affect what you could actually watch and what's going to be available on TV, because, you know, we all love watching television. I've literally got a television on next to me while I'm recording this podcast. So let's talk about what's going on with all these strikes. This week's edition of the podcast is devoted to getting you all the facts you need to know, including what the unions are asking for, why the studios haven't gotten to a deal with these unions, how this is affecting more than those represented by the unions, and how these strikes could have a far-reaching effect on the entertainment industry, and not even just the entertainment industry, but also labor and the labor movement really as a whole in this country. So we're going to get to all those facts this week on the podcast. But first off, let's do it. Let's start with basically how we got to this place. Why are these unions striking? And, you know, the basics of what you should basically know. So to start with that, we've got the Writers Guild of America, the WGA. That is one of the two major unions that are on strike at the moment. They had their contract, what is known as a minimum basic agreement, with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which I'm probably going to refer to as AMPTP, that expired back on May 2nd. Now, the WGA, the Writers Guild, they represent writers in film, television, radio, and in online media. And they're actually split into two different unions. You've got WGA East, which is in the East. It's headquartered in New York. And then WGA West, which is headquartered in LA. But for the purposes of basically this whole strike, they're a combined union. And combined, they represent about 25,000 writers all across the country. Of course, most of them are in New York and LA, all of whom are now on strike. And then on the other side of that, as I said, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the AMPTP, they're the representative for the major film and television production companies in the US. So they're representing companies like Disney, NBC Universal, Paramount, Sony, and Warner Brothers Discovery. And then more recently, companies that have invested in streaming have also joined the alliance, like Amazon, Apple, Netflix. So all those companies have come together for this purpose, and they've created the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, and so they are the ones that are negotiating with the writers instead of basically, you know, the Writers Guild negotiating with all these separate companies. They all just combined into this one alliance, basically. And so you would think that that would, you know, make negotiations for things like labor disputes more simple. It's, you know, you would think, but uh, here we are. So anyways, 97.9% of members of the WGA voted to authorize a strike back on April 18th, which was before the May 2nd deadline, if the union couldn't agree to reach a deal with the AMPTP. Of course, then, when they couldn't reach a deal, the leaders of the guild unanimously approved a strike, which is the first time that the writers have gone on strike since they had a three-month strike, which was back in 2007 and 2008. So it doesn't happen very often, but it has happened in the past, so this isn't really unprecedented. But during the strike, the WGA told its members that they could not, quote, do any writing, revising, pitching, or discussing future projects with companies that are members of the AMPTP, unquote. And so some negotiations between the two sides have taken place during the strike. Of course, the strike is now over four months old, so it's older than that 2007-2008 strike, but nothing substantive has come 
really until August, when talks led to the studios actually proposing what the WGA called a counterproposal. However, they didn't like that very much, and we're going to talk about why in just a second. But since August 25th, there haven't been any talks between the two sides. And so this has led to basically all production shutting down in Hollywood and elsewhere since the strike began. Because, you know, since writers can't write for shows, there's been no writing taking place. And since writing is basically essential for scripted television, then, you know, you really can't go forward with those projects because... You kind of need writing, and that even includes some podcasts that are written by WGA members. Of course, your boy Xander is not a member of the Guild, nor have I been invited to join the Guild. No one cares. Just to let you know. The only productions that have continued are ones that had already been written before the strike began for scripted programming. Of course, there's also non-scripted programming, you know, like reality TV, that doesn't really require writers or so they say some of that stuff i don't know but things like you know game shows singing competitions dating shows etc those can stay on but for scripted shows like uh gray's anatomy saturday night live the late night talk shows they're all off the air because they need writers but it isn't just the writers who are on strike the writers were the first to stop work but since then, the actors have joined them. So you've got the two major unions that we're talking about on this podcast, the WGA and also SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. That's the second major union, SAG-AFTRA. They had their own contract with the AMPTP come to an end on July 14th. And just like with the writers negotiators between the two sides have been unable to come to a deal in the months before. So on June 5th, over 98% of the members of the guild voted to authorize a strike if they couldn't reach a deal. And the negotiators even extended the deadline of negotiations to July 13th in order to hopefully avoid a strike, but uh, eventually they couldn't reach a deal. So on July 13th, the National Board of SAG-AFTRA unanimously voted to strike starting the next day, for the first time for them since 2000. However, that strike was only regarding pay for commercials, so the last time that the actors went on strike against the studios for films and TV shows was actually way back in 1980. And SAG-AFTRA is much bigger than the WGA, because SAG-AFTRA represents nearly 160,000 actors, journalists, talk show hosts, and others. But journalists... Like, if, you know, if you watch CNN or NBC or all the news or whatever, the journalists are on strike because they're on their own separate contract. But for those that are on strike, SAG-AFTRA has instructed them not to participate in film or television productions. So, you know, they basically can't act. They also can't promote their work, though. So they haven't been allowed to attend film premieres, events, or talk about their work on talk shows, basically. But they can work on independent films, student films, and podcasts. Basically, things that don't have to do with their work related to, I guess, the movies or TV shows that they're doing with the members of the AMPTP. And so on the SAG-AFTRA front, we really haven't heard of any substantial negotiations that have come from talks between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP since the strike basically began. Unlike with the writers, because... 
News came out the last few days that they're actually set to return to the bargaining table on September 20th, which is the day this podcast is coming out. So the writers are going back to the negotiating table with the AMPTP, not yet for SAG-AFTRA. But this is also the first time that both the writers and the actors are striking at the same time. You know, they've both striked before, just at different times. This is the first time that they're striking at the same time since 1960. And do you know who was leading SAG at the time, back in 1960? That was a man named Ronald Reagan. Who? Who then became president and wasn't very friendly to the labor unions. But that's basically the basics you need to know about these strikes. But now let's take a look at the positions, really, of the two sides. What are the actors and the writers asking for? And what are the stances of the studios? So let's start with the unions. What makes it even more complicated, you know, is that these are still two separate strikes, even though, you know, on the picket lines, they're kind of joining forces, joining together, but they're negotiating separately. So the WGA is negotiating with the AMPTP separately, and SAG-AFTRA is negotiating separately. So there's two separate negotiations, and kind of, they're very similar but still two separate demand lists. And so let's start with the writers and their demands, the WGA. And really, one major sticking point for both the actors and the writers has been the rise of streaming services. Now, most people love streaming services. You've got Disney+, Apple TV+, Peacock, Max, Paramount+, Hulu, Prime Video, Netflix, you know, all those. Most people love those because, you know, it's kind of given us a lot more content than we've ever had access to at, you know, a much lower price than, say, a cable bundle. And for the most part, writers have enjoyed their rise as well, because the major studio companies have spent the last several years actually trying to create as much content as they can so that they can get people to subscribe to their streaming services, which means usually, and you would think, more work for writers and the people involved in production. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that the writers are getting more in compensation, because there's these things called residuals. And so to explain that, you know, it's kind of like, if you remember back, well, this is still happening, but back when television shows like Friends and The Big Bang Theory, you know, after they would air on NBC and CBS, their new episodes, they would air on channels like TBS and Comedy Central in syndication is what they called that. Those weren't, you know, the first runs of those shows. They were re-airs. But the people who worked on those shows got paid not only for when they were working on the show, but also when it would re-air on these cable networks. And now that's still happening. You know, as I said, if you turn on TBS or Comedy Central during the day, you're probably going to find one of these shows that's still being aired in syndication. But most people would probably just go to, like, a streaming service like Max and stream those shows. So, you know, you can watch whatever episode you want at any time you want. And sometimes without ads, too, which is pretty nice. So these payments, when a show re-airs, are what we call residuals. And the amount that they were depended on how many times a show re-aired and also how popular it was. Basically, how many people were watching. Now. Streaming services still pay out residuals, but they aren't paying as much as the cable networks once did. And that's because in streaming, the residual payments aren't based on how popular the show is, but how popular the streaming service is. 
and only in the U.S. You know, like if a show gets streamed internationally, the people who worked on that show don't get any residuals from that. And so what that means is these residual payments are fixed. So if a show like Suits gets popular all of a sudden on Netflix, which happened for some reason over the summer, Suits, which aired a couple years ago on USA Network, went on to Netflix, and it became like the number one most streamed show on Netflix. It was so weird. So when that happens, the payments don't increase, even though there's a lot more people watching your show, which is making more money for Netflix. And the WGA wants to change that, along with SAG-AFTRA, so that the payments are more like they were when shows aired on cable syndication, basically variable, so that you're guaranteed a certain amount of money, a certain amount of residuals, just for the fact that the show is airing or streaming on that service, but you're also getting more money if it gets more popular and is making the streaming service more money. But the big issue with that is that there's one big difference between cable networks and streaming services, and it's that ratings and viewership are readily available for cable networks. You can go look up ratings online. But streaming services have kind of shied away from sharing that data. There's very few streaming services that share data, and if they do, it's usually for just, like, special events or stuff. Like, Netflix has their top 10 in shows and movies, if you look at that on their app, but that kind of, you know, it doesn't really tell us anything. So Netflix will say things like Suits was the most watched show of the summer or whatever, and we're like, oh, wow, okay, but, you know, what does that mean, kind of, like, in context, or with data? Like, we usually don't get those numbers. So the studios likely wouldn't have to just agree to a more variable payment method for residuals, but they'd also have to commit to releasing more viewership data. If you say so. Which a lot of them might not want to do, which we'll, I'll kind of explain in a little bit. But basically, streamers are actually paying more upfront for the productions, but they're typically paying less on the back end which is hurting writers. And it was basically Netflix who kind of started this model, and others have kind of followed to catch up. Traditional companies too, like Disney and NBC Universal and Paramount, companies who are using traditional methods on traditional television, but then Netflix comes in, changes the game, becomes this major profitable company, and now those companies kind of want to do it like them. And then also, remember, because I feel like I should probably mention this a couple times on this podcast because you might be listening and be like, oh, Xander, oh my gosh, the poor writers who are making millions and millions of dollars a year. Boo-hoo, this is so terrible. I'm not talking about them. Of course, you know, you've got big names like Ryan Murphy, Shonda Rhimes. They've got, you know, millions and millions to go around. But according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average income for a Hollywood writer isn't even $70,000 a year. This is true. And that, you know, may go pretty far in some places. We're talking about most of these writers living in Southern California, which is one of the most expensive places to live. So it's important to remember that there are several writers who are very well off, but we're talking about 20,000 writers in this union. Many of them are not that well-off, who are represented by the union, and would benefit greatly from getting that residual money, unlike, you know, maybe someone with millions and millions of dollars. But those writers are very few and far between. You've got a vast majority of the writers who are in the guild who aren't making a lot of money. 
And so another point for the WGA in these negotiations has been writers' rooms and how long writers are employed. Now, the idea of what we can call a writers' room has long been the norm in Hollywood, but you've got new companies that have been entering the game, like Apple, Netflix, Amazon. The ways that they make TV shows and movies are kind of changing and different, and it's changing basically how everybody is making TV shows and movies. And so writers' rooms kind of used to be the norm, but companies like Netflix have recently been pivoting to what are known as mini-rooms, which typically have a smaller number of writers who also don't work on a production for as long a period of time as in a typical writer's room. And so, because writer's rooms were actually so custom, like, you know, they were the norm, basically, for decades, their presence actually wasn't required in the WGA's contract with the AMPTP. But with this new contract, the WGA wants to change that. Now, what they're asking for specifically is a minimum number of writers to be hired for what is known as a pre-green light room. Now, this is basically where scripts are written before a program actually gets picked up by a network or a streaming service. Because usually what happens is that the idea comes about, they write a pilot, a script or two, they, you know, show it to the networks, and the networks that like it try and pick up the show or the movie. So the Guild also wants at least one writer to be employed per episode of a show, plus another writer for every two episodes after the sixth episode of the show, up to a max of 12 writers, along with having at least half of the writers stay employed through the production of the show, basically, you know, while it's being shot. And at least one writer stays employed through the post-production of the show, basically after it's been shot and it's going into the editing phases. Now, this is important really for two reasons. because. If you remember, back in the day, and still it's happening now on broadcast television, but when everybody would watch broadcast television and the shows on there, the seasons would be 20, 22, 24 episodes in a season. And it really wasn't until, I guess, HBO that TV shows started making seasons with shorter episodes. Like, usually, HBO had it, you know, 10, 13, 15, and cable networks like USA, FX, AMC also had seasons that weren't as long. And with the streamers, if you've noticed, a lot of the episodes are, they're longer in length, like, you know, maybe half an hour instead of 22 minutes or so for a broadcast network half an hour show because you got to fit the commercials in there, or an actual hour instead of 42 minutes or whatever. But the seasons are a lot shorter. There's eight episodes in a season, ten episodes in a season. And so when the WGA is asking for one writer to be employed per episode of the show, plus another writer for every two episodes after the sixth episode of the show, up to a max of 12 writers, that's pretty important for actually keeping writers employed during the show, which leads me to my second point of why it's important. Because, you know, before you had the rise of many rooms... And really, in the era of writers' rooms, writers would routinely stay on during the filming of a show or a film, not just really to refine and tweak the production, but also to stay on as producers to really learn the ins and outs of production and get them ready to lead their own show or film one day, along with working with editing in post-production. So, in essence, it's kind of like training on the job that's actually going to allow higher quality content to continue to be produced 
when you get new showrunners and producers that take over after they've been writers and they've been able to experience what showrunners and producers do during the production of the show. And, you know, let's be honest, like, if you've watched some of the Netflix content that they've put out over the last few years, I think it definitely could have been aided by some refining of the script while production was taking place. Yikes! So, you know, it ultimately leads to a higher quality product in the present as well. Like, when I think of that and Netflix content that kind of was, eh, the one show that I keep thinking of was called Space Force. Y'all know the Space Force, but there was a show called Space Force in, on Netflix, and it had Steve Carell starring Greg Daniels, who was, you know, the head writer, basically, at The Office. So it was them reuniting for the show, which I thought was going to be, you know, in Space Force, the concept, I thought it was going to be amazing, and it kind of, like, stunk. Rude! And so ultimately, you have to think that a writer's room, with the writers staying on and refining and tweaking, doing things, you know, in production, when you actually try something out, it might be a lot different than how you envisioned it when you were writing it, you know? And so you might, you know, you might actually see what you wrote, be visualized, and then you say, oh, that wasn't very good, let's try and tweak that. You know, those are important things, really, to kind of actually have a high-quality product in your film or your TV show. So that's why it's kind of important, those writers' rooms and actually having them. That's why it's kind of important. But the writers are also concerned about the shorter work times that are associated with the mini-rooms. The WGA actually said in a May press release that it sort of created what they called, quote, a gig economy inside a union workforce, unquote. And so if you made writers' rooms mandated, that would kind of relieve that concern for writers. And the WGA also announced that they're seeking a 13-week guaranteed employment for writers when they're on a project. And then, of course, you've got artificial intelligence or AI. You may remember, if you listen to this podcast, we devoted an episode of this podcast to AI, episode 96, back in March. You should go check it out. I was joined by some very special guests for that podcast in AI, if you know what I mean. So in regards to AI, the writers are actually concerned that the media companies could go ahead and get rid of writers and instead use AI to write film and TV show scripts, which, I mean, probably isn't a good idea, not just for the fact that it would, you know, put an entire profession out of work, but also because, as I just mentioned earlier, quality. The quality that AI would produce, and AI is, you know, certain to continue improving, as it has been, but something like ChatGPT, if you use ChatGPT, I mean, it's been known to just throw in some random inquiries, falsehoods when you ask it a question, so it's not always reliable, and if you follow Xander's Facts on Instagram, by the way, you should, you've probably, there's a website that I've posted about a couple times that actually uses AI to summarize YouTube videos, so I've kind of put my YouTube video link in there and had it summarized for it. But, and it does a good job, but it doesn't always get everything right. And the structure of the sentences and the paragraphs it creates is kind of clunky. So you'd probably need human writers to fix up what AI wrote in the first place. So why even rely on it in the first place, you know? And so basically what the writers are requesting is not that artificial intelligence never be used, but that tools like ChatGPT only be allowed for 
research and facilitating script ideas, not to actually write the scripts themselves. That's what they're trying to get the studios to agree to. And so what the WGA is also requesting is that every member of a writing team on a project receive their own pension, as well as healthcare funds. And so that's the writer's demands. The demands of the Actors Guild are pretty similar. You know, they've got general wage increases, which also the writers have, and the variable residual payments. And then SAG-AFTRA is also asking for assurances in regards to AI. Now, in the circumstance of the actors, they're requesting that background actors not be replaced by computer-generated visualizations, or what they like to call a digital replica that could include a performer's voice, performance, or likeness. So pushing this through would make sure that studios really can't capture the voice or image of a background actor, and then use the voice or image of that actor for other projects without compensating them. Nice try, buddy. And so SAG is also wanting to increase any fines for late payments that are coming from the studios, because apparently that happens often. They also want to make sure that actors who are not in Los Angeles or New York are not paid less than those who are, and they also want, just generally, better working conditions. And so just like I said with the writers, I think I have to say it for the actors, too. We aren't just talking about actors like Meryl Streep and Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, made $270 million last year. But the average Hollywood actor made $27.73 an hour last year. And again, we're talking about, you know, these actors are located everywhere, but the vast majority are in Los Angeles and Southern California, where... You need a lot of change to get by in that area. It's the truth. And so really, what the strikes are about is helping out those actors. Because, I mean, Meryl Streep and Leonardo DiCaprio and The Rock are all great. But, you know, to make really this big motion picture, you need hundreds, thousands of people and background actors. And so, you know, you kind of have to pay them well or else why would they do it you know in los angeles and get crappy work and then live crappy lives and so that's basically what the strikes are really about and then back to the writers the wga actually found that back in march the median weekly pay for writers and producers actually declined over 23 percent from 10 years ago when you adjust it for inflation so their purchasing power has gone down a lot as well So those are basically the demands that the actors and the writers are asking for in these negotiations. And because they haven't gotten some of them, or all of them, in their negotiations, they're still striking. As I'm talking right now, Tuesday, September 19th. But then, of course, in all labor disputes, you've got the other side. And in that case, AMPTP, the entertainment and the media companies. So... Those are the stances that are being taken by the labor unions. Why are the entertainment media companies saying no to these demands? And I think you could probably guess what it is. Money? Get that dough! And that's true. You know, one overall point has been that many of the traditional media companies like Disney and Warner Brothers have been in cost-cutting mode recently. That wasn't the case, you know, a few years ago when these companies were committing billions and billions of dollars to spend on content for their new streaming services, 
Like, if you remember, Disney was wanting to get a new episode of a Star Wars show and a new episode of a Marvel show, like, every single week. It was crazy, the amount of content they were trying to put out. But that really isn't the case anymore, because shareholders were fine, really, with putting out all that content to get all those subscribers, as many as possible, but now they've changed their tune. And if you really need to know anything about these public companies, they rely on what the shareholders, the big shareholders at least, maybe not you and me that own a share or two, but what the big shareholders say and what's going to affect their stock price. And the shareholders of companies like Disney, NBC Universal, and Paramount, they were all fine with spending loads of money in order to actually build up these streaming services and attract as many subscribers as possible, but the shift has gone back towards focusing on profitability. It's why the monthly price of Disney Plus is now double what it was when it first launched back in 2019, and it's also why companies like Disney recently laid off thousands of employees, because it makes their profit margins look better. Like, look, Disney whether they laid off all those people or not, is going to make money this year as a whole. Now, some divisions and their streaming services aren't making money, but the company as a whole is going to make money and a lot of money. But it makes their profit margins look better, which the shareholders like, and it raises their stock price, which, you know, is really why these companies do things. So in the view of these companies... You know, maybe except for Amazon and Apple, because, you know, streaming is kind of secondary to them. You know, Apple's got all their devices and Amazon has the shopping. So streaming really isn't that important to them. It's profitability right now. But except for those companies, they're going to want to do whatever they can to save money right now. And I think the fact that these strikes came up when they did, or the contract disputes that led to the strikes came up when they did, was kind of a perfect storm. Here And the fact that these companies were in cost-cutting mode a couple years ago, but they really are now. And so last month, I said earlier, negotiations reignited actually between the studios and the writers. The AMPTP actually released its counteroffer to the WGA demands, which included guaranteed lengths of employment. They said writers would be hired for a minimum of 10 weeks. If you remember, I said the WGA wanted 13 weeks. Increased data transparency. I think they said they would release their ratings or viewership on a quarterly basis, so four times a year. Also, what the studios say would be the biggest wage boost to writers in 35 years, and what they've called a, quote, new structure to train writers to become the showrunners of tomorrow, unquote. Basically, writers' rooms. But in the eyes of the writers, it wasn't enough. And now, many actually believe that releasing the terms of the counteroffer is backfiring on the studios, because it was likely a power play from them, and many WGA members seemed upset with the move, and that it angered them. And then, one legal expert told the Los Angeles Times that the decision could actually be against laws that govern collective bargaining. Whoops. And that when this has happened in the past with other labor disputes, it hasn't really helped the side that released the offer. And so the WGA ultimately released a statement that said of the meeting where that deal was presented back in August, quote, this wasn't a meeting to make a deal. This was a meeting to get us to cave, unquote. It continues, 
quote, this was the company's plan from the beginning, not to bargain, but to jam us. It is their only strategy to bet that we will turn on each other, unquote. Although the Los Angeles Times notes that this strategy seemed to work back during the writer's strike of 2007 and 2008 for the studios, basically trying to get them to cave when the Writers Guild wasn't as unified back then. That does not appear to be the case today, at least from what we've seen four months on. They've stood pretty strong. And as I mentioned earlier, there haven't been any negotiations from the studios in SAG-AFTRA that we know of. Although SAG has claimed that they are willing to resume negotiations at any moment, it looks like right now the Writers who began their strike first are the ones going back to the negotiating table sooner. But here's the issue for the members of the AMPTP. The strike is hurting them as well. Now, Warner Brothers Discovery, they've probably been the company in this group that's cut costs the most aggressively, you could say, in the last few years. They've claimed that they're going to miss out on up to $500 million in earnings this year because of the strike. And you've got other companies like Disney, Paramount, NBC Universal that are probably going to miss out on some revenue as well because they're not going to be able to air many new seasons of scripted shows on their broadcast networks like ABC, CBS, NBC. So the studios are going to start losing money because they aren't paying the actors and the writers. It's kind of weird. Like, they kind of need to pay them for them to gain money. But Netflix, Warner Bros., Disney, they've all said they're going to save some money in the short term because they're not making those expenses right now. But the longer that these strikes last, it's going to hurt both sides even more. So for now, you know, shows and movies are still kind of trickling out. We're still getting some new content that was finished up before the strikes began. But that well of content that is finished and ready to go for the studios is going to dry up soon. And then you've also got the fact that the actors can't promote that work that's being released right now because that would go against the rules of the strike. Like, you've kind of had some confusion in the last few days because there's been a couple talk show hosts, Jennifer Hudson, Drew Barrymore, Bill Maher on HBO. They've all said in the last few days, the talk on CBS, they've all said that they are going to try and come back before the strike is over. And they said, we're not going to use our writers who are on strike for the shows so that we're compliant with the rules. But basically, SAG and the WGA, they threw cold water on those ideas. Almost universal, no. So now, Drew Barrymore, Bill Maher, Jennifer Hudson, like all those shows and those talk show hosts have said, they're going to wait for a little bit and see what happens. And so that's kind of been brought up in the last few days. I mean, the strikes have gone on now well past 100 days, and the studios have actually taken the steps of suspending existing deals with top producers like J.J. Abrams, Chuck Lorre, who made The Big Bang Theory and other shows, Mindy Kaling, and others. They've suspended those deals, so they don't have to pay those producers, and then those producers can't pay their staffs. So that's kind of an issue. So why are the studios not fully engaging on making a deal? Short answer, it really all has to do with money, you know? And this isn't just affecting the members of the unions, as I alluded to earlier. The actors and the writers who are members of the guilds are obviously being affected because they're out of work. 
but they're not the only ones being affected. You've got politicians who are trying to step in here, like the governor of California, Kevin Newsom, the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass. They both say that they're in support of the unions, but they're also calling for a swift resolution to the strikes. Now, why is that? Because not having Hollywood function, a large portion of it, is a major economic burden to Los Angeles, Southern California, and the state, really, as a whole. Because California, California has the fourth, what is it, fourth largest economy in the world. They'd still be okay without the entertainment industry, but it's still a big part of their economy and what goes on there. I mean, it's part of what keeps the region of the state running. So having it almost stopped really isn't so great. But even going beyond the effects of the local economy, because production, as I said, has basically stopped on all films and shows. That means that crew members who work on those productions but aren't in the writers or actors guilds are out of a job. Like, you know, someone like a music supervisor or a visual effect artist. They're not usually represented by their own unions. They're out of jobs, though. And as I saw in an article from The Atlantic, you know, it's clear that while they support the strikes, they're also concerned for their well-beings as well. And that's same for many of those actors and writers who don't have much savings to fall back on. Like, part of the rationale that those talk show hosts that I mentioned earlier gave for coming back on the air was, you know, we also have to support the people who work on our show who are out of work right now because nothing's going on in Hollywood, but they're not represented by a union. And so, you know, if you are the host of a talk show, your name is on there, you're kind of responsible for them too. And so you have that whole aspect to deal with as well. Like I said, the producers, like J.J. Abrams has his own production company. He's the head of the production company. The money that he gets from his deal with Warner Brothers Discovery, he then uses to pay the staff of his production company. But because that deal is suspended, he either has to do it out of his own pocket or can't really at all. And so, again, we're talking about behind-the-scenes people. You know, we like to make fun of the credits on the movies and the TV shows that just go endlessly on and on. But without those people, those shows and movies wouldn't have been made in the first place. And they're not getting paid a lot of money either. And now they're out of work. Spitting the truth. And so there's that whole aspect as well, that it's not just affecting the members of these unions. It's affecting a lot more people in the entertainment industry. And so these strikes really have layers that you just go deep into and you figure out that, oh, this isn't just about the actors who are making millions and millions of dollars or the writers or the producers. This is about actors and writers who are making, you know, barely enough to live in Southern California. This is about the people, the production workers who barely have enough to live as is while working in Southern California and other areas around the country. And now they're out of a job because they're asking for more money. The studios won't give them, at least not right now, they're not agreeing to it. And so, you know, it's really, you know, just so many complicated layers of these strikes, which is what I, you know, why I wanted to talk about it on the podcast, because it's not as simple as Leonardo DiCaprio wants more money from the actors. And so the studio should pay him more. You know, it goes a lot deeper than that. So... Final question here. What's going to happen? Do we know what's going to happen? Good question. I mean, I guess they've got to come to an agreement sometime, right? Like, the studios 
aren't just going to sit around forever because eventually they're going to start losing money, but the actors and the writers aren't going to sit around and pick it forever because eventually their savings are going to dry up. And so eventually they'll come to the table and say, all right, we, you know, you win, or they're going to move on, move to other jobs. You know, it's basically going to come down to who blinks first. You know, do the writers and the actors collectively say that too many are considering leaving the industry because they aren't making any money due to the strikes? And do they stand down from their demands? Or is it the studios who agree to the demands due to the fear of losing more money? You know, at a time when they're trying to cut costs and increase their profit margins? Or is it, you know, even all of the studios? Is it like one or two studios that decide to break away from the alliance and agree to cut deals on their own? In that case, it would probably be Apple or Amazon in that case. But does that set off a chain of agreements being made? Nobody really knows who's going to blink first, how that's going to play out. But it's definitely going to have wide-reaching effects on the entertainment industry no matter the outcome. Because as I said, it's not just the writers and the actors' unions who are being affected. So, you know, it may not be as important to us normal people as something like a government shutdown, which, by the way, might happen at the end of the month. Just letting you all know, we might have talked about that on this podcast pretty soon. Oh, yay! But it's interesting to keep tabs on these strikes out in Hollywood because it is going to affect what you can watch on TV over the next few months. Like the major broadcast networks like ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC, they're going to be showing a lot more sports and unscripted content this fall, you know, instead of the regular scripted shows that they put out. Like ABC just announced they're going to carry the whole season of Monday Night Football, which they haven't done since 2006 because after that it went to ESPN. But it's now brought back on ABC because... They've got holes in their schedule because all their con- their scripted content, you know, that we're still going to get stuff like Dancing with the Stars and The Bachelor, but shows like, I mean, Grey's Anatomy, as I said, and Abbott Elementary, like their comedies and their dramas that are scripted, they're not going to air because they're not being produced right now. And then even beyond the entertainment industry, the outcome is going to show whether the labor movement, which has risen in the last few years, is going to continue to get stronger because if the actors and the writers get their demands met, then that probably gives some leverage to other unions in their demands, like the United Auto Workers and others who may soon go on strike. Like, according to Gallup polling, back in 2009, when Barack Obama first got inaugurated, labor unions were only approved by 48% of Americans. That number is up to 67% this year. That's the highest it's been since the 1960s. That's a lot of numbers. So it also helps, I think, of course, that there's a president in the White House who, right now, routinely advocates on behalf of labor unions. That was kind of his whole pitch. And so what we've seen, really, in especially the last few years, is labor and unions gaining momentum again in this country. Now, what happens with the writers... And the actors might play a big part on if that momentum continues or whether it kind of stalls out. But we've got talks between the studios and the writers resuming today, as I said, Wednesday, September 20th. So it may be soon before we get a deal. And when we get a deal, it's definitely going to be one that's examined by labor unions across the country. That's why, even beyond the entertainment industry, it is such a big deal. And so... 
with that, those are basically all the facts that I've got for you on the strikes that are going out in Hollywood, why they're happening, what the sides are, and I guess I tried my best to answer what's going to happen. We really don't know, but whatever happens, the consequences are going to be massive, not just in the entertainment industry. So those are all the facts that I've got for you this week on the Zaders Facts Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Remember that if you liked all the facts that we had on this week's edition of the podcast, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 118, rate and review the podcast, and check us out on all the socials, Twitter, Threads, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at Zaders Facts, that's Zader with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends, spread the facts! Zaders Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, the newsletter, Zaders Weekend Facts, the Zaders Facts channel on YouTube. You should go check out our channel on YouTube because all our new episodes, including this one, get posted there as a video with a nice background. You can watch. We're over 100 subscribers, y'all. Fun things are going on on the Zaders Facts YouTube channel. Go check it out. Link is in this episode's description. And also, go check out the Zaders Facts link tree, which is also linked in this episode's description because it has all the Zaders Facts links that you need for the podcast, the newsletter, the socials, the YouTube, all that stuff on the Xander's Facts link tree. So that's it for episode 118, y'all. We got another new episode coming up next week, of course. Episode 119, what it's going to be on, something factual. I'll give you that right now. We haven't ironed out the details yet, but it is going to be something with facts is basically what I can say, as it is every week. So make sure you tune in next week for another new episode of the Zaders Facts Podcast. But that is it. That is a wrap on episode 118 of the Zaders Facts Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see y'all with episode 119 next week. The caravan of mostly Central American immigrants is now in the Mexican city of Guadalajara.